It's such an honor to be here, and um, I'm blessed to have each and every one of you. I, I want to say, first of all, just I really, really appreciate Andrew and Jamie Womack. And uh, the privilege of being associated with the Bible school. And I teach about five first-year courses. I teach three second-year courses, one of them several times, and I teach a couple of third-year courses. And so I love, love the uh, opportunity to be um, associated with the Bible school. In fact, I believe that we're affecting the next generation. And I've got a CD series. This is different than anything I've ever taught, but it's called The Next Generation. And I believe that God gave me a word that if we don't change the next generation, we're going to fail at world evangelization. But I believe that we are changing the next generation. And I actually believe that there is a revival in America. And I believe that you can see it in the young people of America. Uh, my youngest son, Peter, just graduated from Princeton University. And um, while he was there, he was in a group called Princeton Faith in Action. And that group in the last 10 years has grown from 25 kids to over 500 kids. And that is 12.5% of the student body at Princeton University. And that's not the only Christian organization. There are a number of other evangelical groups in addition to that one. The leadership of that is spirit-filled. And they are turned, they're getting kids saved, born again, turned around. We have another girl in our church that's attending Texas A&M University at College Station, Texas. They have a Bible study at Texas A&M that meets every Tuesday night. Happens to be 30,000 college students that come together to worship Jesus Christ every Tuesday night. Praise God. So I want to tell you, I believe that there is a revival in America. Amen. And I believe that we're seeing it in the young people. And I believe that we can reach the next generation. And the way that we're going to reach them is we're going to reach them with the message of grace and the power of the Holy Ghost. That is what's going to reach them. That is what changed my life. When Andrew Womack came to Lamar, Colorado and preached the gospel with the, the grace of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, it turned my life right side up. And I believe that's the same message that's going to change the lives of young men and young uh, women today is the message of the grace of God. And in this series, I did something different than I've ever done. I shared uh, about evangelization. First of all, evangelization, there's two aspects of it. There's preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel, but then there's the aspect of discipleship. And so I focused more on discipleship in this area. And I talked about, you know, what we've sown into our three children. We have three sons. They're all serving Jesus. They're all loving Jesus. They're all actively involved in the body of Christ. And they have a great testimony. And so we just ask our kids, what did we do that helped you get where you're at? Then I talked about my mentors who are Andrew Womack and Lester Sumrall and things that really have spoken to me from their lives. And so I want to give this away to somebody, whoever wants it. Amen. (laughs) Give that to somebody that's got kids, young kids. That'll be good for you. (laughs) All right. Praise God. Then I just got done teaching a series on receiving healing. This may be as good as I've ever taught, and we're featuring this out at our book table out there. It's four messages on receiving healing. A lot of us know the covenant promises, but it's how to get those things working in our life that we lack in. And so I believe this is a great series. We have it on CD and DVD. So somebody want that? All right. You can go give that to somebody. And then I have my newest book is The Power and Life of the Word. And there's, I read through this again the other day. There's just a lot of revelation in it. Praise God. And we have these out there. And so if somebody wants this, can, Gary can give this away. So I just really appreciate being here. I want to say it's a very special for me to have my wife, Barbara. I usually have her share, but I have this message and I want to get done in my time allotted. And I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but uh, I'm going to share a little bit today from the book of Hebrews and I really felt like about three or four weeks ago, the Lord just uh, impressed on me to share some things today from the book of Hebrews. Of course, uh, you know that the theme of the book of Hebrews is that we have a better covenant established on better promises. And that's what it's talking about is the better better covenant. We know what makes it better. Jesus is the one who makes it better. Praise God. And so I'm going to go through this, but as we go through, I'm going to go through really quickly uh, the first nine chapters, and then I'm just going to hit some high points, but then in chapter 10 and chapter 12, I'm going to try to focus most of my time here. But when we begin to look at this, uh, the question that I want to ask you 
Uh, when we're talking about the new covenant, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the grace of God, or we're talking about Jesus, is what does the new covenant, what does the gospel, what does the grace of God, what does Jesus, what response does that uh, bring from us? Because I believe that when we really understand the new covenant, when we understand the gospel, when we understand the grace of God, when we understand who Christ really is, it, it incites a, a response from us. And so I want you to, as we go through it, think about that question. I want to begin in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll just read a couple of scriptures here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. God, who at different times in different manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom he made the world. God has spoken to us. And I believe that God is speaking to us. And God has has spoken to us in the past through the prophets, but now he's speaking to us through Jesus. And when we begin to think about, he begins to talk about who Jesus is. He's the creator of the universe, right? He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the Lord of eternity. Then he talks about in chapter two, he says, because God's speaking to us in Jesus, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or drift away or move away from the things that we've received from Jesus. He talks about in the Old Testament, the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just repayment of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have an awesome salvation. Do you know, I... I can get to, I've been born again for 41 years and I can start preaching about salvation, about being born again. And I can get totally beside myself, excited, happy. Amen. It's we, we have a phenomenal salvation. And he talks about not only who Jesus is, but what he did for us. He saved us. He restored us to a position of authority. He just delivered us. He freed us. Thank God for what Jesus did. Then he goes on in chapter three and and says this, wherefore, holy brethren, I like that, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. You know, if you really consider who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, there's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. It's like the disciples. Jesus was having a meeting one day in John chapter six and he had several thousand people. Jesus said, you didn't come out here uh, because you, you know, wanted really to know who I am and to really receive the gospel. You just came out here to get your belly full. And his crowd kind of willed down to about 12. That's quite a church growth program, 5,000 to 12 one day. Boy. (laughs) And then Jesus, then Jesus said, hey, you guys can go too. And, and they said, where will we go, Lord, for only you have the words of eternal life. When you consider Jesus, when you really understand who he is and what he's done, there is absolutely nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. Praise God, the work's finished, the work's done. And he talks about that. And so he goes on talking about uh, when we consider Jesus, he says in verse 7 and verse 8 here in chapter 3, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says today, will you hear his voice? Harden not your heart as in the day of provocation in the wilderness. He goes on and says in verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Remember, God is speaking to us. God has spoken to us. God is speaking to us today through Jesus. Don't harden your heart to the Holy Spirit. Don't harden your heart. Jesus is the shepherd, we are sheep. Don't harden your heart to the voice of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to us in the body of Christ today. Now in chapter four, he begins to talk about when we consider Jesus, we put our confidence in Jesus. In fact, he makes a statement in verse two, for unto us was the gospel preached as as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard heard it. In other words, once we hear about Jesus, you've got to express faith. It doesn't just come to you by osmosis. You must believe it. If you don't believe it, it's not going to profit you. It's not going to help you. It's not going to benefit you. But when you believe the gospel, praise God, it changed your life. When I got born again, my life was changed. When Andrew Womack came to Lamar, Colorado in 1978 and preached the gospel, and I began to believe not only am I 
going to make it to heaven through believing Jesus, but praise God, I don't have to be sick, poor, and defeated. There's a great salvation. There's an awesome life that God has. I have authority over all the works of the devil, praise God. I can live a victorious life. I believe that gospel, and when I believe that gospel, my life changed. My life got turned right side up. I, I set a new course, and I've never went back, thank God. My life has never been the same. I'm so excited. I'm still excited about that. Amen. And, and then he makes this statement in verse three. He says, for we who have believed enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. When we put our faith and our confidence, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a rest. We come to a place of peace where it's no longer about us. It's not about our performance. It's not all about all the things that we do, but it's about what he has already done. And we enter into this rest. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God had a plan for our salvation before the foundation of the world. Amen? He saved us and called us with the holy calling before the foundation of the world. Paul says in 2 Timothy. It's just an awesome thing. He goes on and makes this statement in verse 9. Therefore remains a rest to the people of God. Now what he's saying in the Old Testament, they had to believe to enter into the promised land. God had to let a whole generation of people die off in the wilderness, not because he wanted them to die off, but because they wouldn't believe. But he said, even after they entered the promised land, David came and he spoke of a rest that they hadn't received of another day. So ultimately, the rest that he was focused on is the rest that we have in Christ. And when we enter into the the finished work of Christ, we come to a place of rest. And it's not about how much I pray and how much I give and how much I go to church and how much I read my Bible. It's not about all the things that I do or I didn't do. It's about what Jesus has already done. But when I understand what Jesus has already done, it changes the way that I live my life. And he begins to talk about that as you go to the end of the chapter. He begins to talk about our great high priest. And in verse 14, he says, seeing that we have this great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He says, for we don't have a high priest who can be touched, cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, let us... uh, And yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Our great high priest Jesus rules and reigns from a throne of grace. Praise God. And we come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain grace, to obtain mercy, to obtain help in a time of need. The problem with preaching sin and preaching that your sin will separate you from God and do it all these things is what that will do is when you sin, it'll drive you from God. When you preach grace, you run to Jesus. Because he's the total answer for your sin. Amen? Then he begins to talk in chapter 5 about the priesthood of Jesus Christ and who he is. And he makes some statements, but I want to jump down to the end. Um, Verse 10, he says, he's called a high priest after order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, my king of righteousness, is what that's literally translated from the uh, Old Testament. My king of righteousness. Melchizedek was the priest king of Jerusalem. And he begins to say some things about him. And he says, you've heard some things that are hard to say, hard to be uttered, seeing that you're dull of hearing. Now, what he's talking about there in verse 11 is that legalism will make you dull of hearing. The law will make you dull of hearing. He says, by the time that you ought to be teachers in verse 12, you have need that one teach you again the very basic principles of the mouth of God and are become such as have need of milk and and not strong meat. That is the result of legalism. He says in verse 13, this is what bears it out. For everyone who uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Thank God that we are preaching the word of righteousness. Amen? That we are the righteousness of God in Christ. I remember when uh, Barbara and I were getting married, my brother-in-law came to see us. And I told my, sister, my future sister-in-law at that point in time that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Boy, you talk about in trouble. I don't think she's hardly ever spoken to me since that. And Barbara and I have been married for a long time, 29 years. And, and, uh, but we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And you know, their life, they were old traditional Christians and they got stuck and really had a lot of problems. And then they found out after about... 10 years of living in misery and problems that they are the righteousness of God in Christ and they need the word that we preach. Well, if you don't understand who you are, you'll live a messed up life. 
But when you begin to understand who you are, it changes the way that you live your life. When you begin to understand the grace of God and what Jesus has done, it changes the way that you respond to God. Now, the natural response to grace when you understand grace is that you live by faith. And that's what Paul talks about, or the writer of Hebrews. It might not be Paul, it might be somebody else. The writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 6. And so he makes this statement in verse 12, that you be not slothful, but be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So God is speaking from heaven. He's spoken to us by Jesus. We want to give heed to what he's saying, right? So we don't let them slip because we've got this phenomenal salvation. There's some phenomenal things that Jesus has done for us. And when you consider him and come into what he's done, you don't want to harden your heart. You don't want to turn away from Jesus, but you want to enter the rest of faith. And when you come to the rest of faith, you understand that he is the great high priest of our confession. You begin to understand that grace and it leads you to a life of faith. Now, in this life of faith, it's, it's, it's a total different way that we live. And he talks about that in Hebrews chapter 7. He talks, begins to talk about our priest king, Melchizedek, right? And he talks about how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, right? Now, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, right, Melchizedek, who was the priest king of Jerusalem, of Salem, blessed him. And we understand that the less is blessed of the greater. In Abraham's loins was Levi, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And the 12 tribes of Jacob, one was the tribe of Levi. Now the law, right? The Old Testament law demands that the the Levitical priesthood take tithes of the people, right? But if we're going to have a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then we're going to have not only to have a change of priesthood, we're going to have to have a change of the law. And he talks about that in verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there's a necessity of the change of the law because, right, Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek, who is greater. And if Levi is receiving tithes, right, Levi, Christ is greater than Levi. Now, here men die that receive tithes, but there he receives them that lives forevermore. Praise God. So when I tithe, when I give, I give as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I give offerings to Andrew Womack Ministries, I give it as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And I put my confidence and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that, you know, that he's the one that's watching over that seed that I've sown and bringing a reward from that. All right. And so he just talks about that and he talks, he talks a little bit about this difference of this Old Testament priesthood and this New Testament great high priest that we have, Jesus. In the Old Testament, those priests died and, and, and they gave sacrifices for their own sins and for the people's sins. And they came every year and offered these sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again, which could never take away sins. But now we have this great high priest, Jesus, and he's never going to die. Praise God. And he offered one one sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, the sacrifice of his blood that has totally eradicated our sin. And today there is no more remembrance of our sin. Praise God. So in this new covenant, we have a brand new life. We have a brand new priest. Our priest is Jesus. I I don't care what man that you're following. Dr. Sumrall said this, every man of God has clay feet. That means there's a little bit of dirt in all of us. I actually got a kick out of Andrew last night preaching about once in a while wanting to slap somebody. I said, hey, I punched Wendell and said, he, he is flat. He, he, he does. He lives in a human body. He's real, you know. Pastor in the church, I feel like slapping somebody about every week. <laughs> you know, when you're working with horses and cows, you just expect they don't, you know, they don't know any better. When you're working with people, you're like, what is wrong with this dumb sheep? Like he is real. He, he does have a body. He does have flesh. <laughs> Praise God. Anyway, I better keep on my message. But so his, chapter seven talks about this priest king, Jesus, our great high priest. And he, he makes some statements about Jesus. And he says in verse 22, by so much more, Jesus was made the surety of a better covenant. Jesus is the guarantee. The Old Testament promises came to us if we kept the law, but we couldn't keep the law. 
So what was a blessing ended up being a curse. But now Jesus is the guarantee of this thing. And it's not based on my performance. It's not, not based on how good I am. It's not based on how well I do. It's based on how well that he's already done. He's the guarantee of the new covenant. And then he makes this statement in verse 25. He says, wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost who come to God by him. He can save them completely. Thank God he can save them spirit, soul, and body. He'll not only save you, he'll heal you, he'll deliver you, he'll prosper you, he'll give you peace. Whatever you need is all wrapped up in a person and his name is Jesus. Seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. I don't care what kind of intercession you're making. If your intercession doesn't line up with his intercession, it's not going to accomplish very much. But Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. And when we come to God in the name of Jesus and agree when the Holy Ghost is praying through us, he's making his intercession according to the will of God, right? And him that searches the heart who is Jesus... And the will of the Father, what the promise already said. So the Father promised it. Jesus already purchased it. Jesus is searching our heart. He knows what it is that we need before we even ask. And the Holy Spirit's now praying through us the perfect will of God. When we make intercession, our intercession doesn't stand for much unless it agrees with the intercession that Jesus is already making for us. But thank God Jesus is praying for me. That's awesome. That ought to get you going. Jesus told Peter, hey, I've I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Amen. Praise God. Isn't that awesome? So we have this new priest in this new covenant, in this brand new life that we've given, been given. And then he makes some statements in chapter 8. He's talking about that we have a new covenant. And the key verse to the book of Hebrews right here in in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, Now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant that was established on better promises. What made the thing better is in the new covenant, it's all based on Jesus. It's not based on me, not based on my performance or my lack thereof. Not, not, it's, it's just based on Jesus. And when I put my faith in Jesus, praise God, now the promises of God become mine. In, in fact, he says this, He says in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. He says in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Will I remember no more? See, that's the heart of this new covenant. In the old covenant, it says if you do this, if you will hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God, to do according to all that is written, then, right, you'll be blessed. Well, the problem with that is I can't do it. Because I don't keep the whole law, right? I can't do it. I'm physically incapable of doing that. And so the Old Testament became a curse. Now, Christ redeemed me from the curse because he became a curse for me. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant... This is how the new covenant is. I will be merciful their unrighteousness. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. I'm going to do this. And it's what he's already done. It's what... Praise God, it's not about what we do, it's about what he's already done. And so he says, we have this new priest, we have a brand new covenant. The new covenant's not based on our performance or lack thereof. The new covenant's based on his performance. It's what God did. He's already done it. He's already finished it. He's already completed it from the foundation of the world. It was in his plan and Jesus came and got the thing going. Now, now he begins to talk in Hebrews chapter 9. Not only do we have a new priest, a new covenant, then in Hebrews chapter 9, he says we have a new sanctuary and a new sacrifice. In the old covenant, they had a temple, right? And they had a tabernacle. And they came and they went by the altar and they went by the laver. Speaking of that was dealing with the body, right? Then they went into the holy place and and they could go in there anytime, basically. And in the holy place, they had the, the candlesticks, they had the altar, Right? They had the table. That's talking about the soul. The, old, the outer court was talking about the body, the sins of the body. Then the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Then the most holy place, which represented God's presence among his people. The high priest went once a year. And when he went there, he took blood, not only for the people's sins, but for his own sins. 
But now in this new covenant, right? This new, we have, we have a new sanctuary. And it's, it's not that old tabernacle because in fact, when Christ died, the veil of that old tabernacle was ripped in two from the top to the bottom, being that it wasn't the work of a man. It was the work of God himself. God was saying two things. Number one, he was saying, I want out of here. I want to come and live in the hearts of men. I want to live in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost that you have of God and you're not your own for you're bought with the Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Not only is your spirit the property of God, your body is the property of God Almighty. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Not only has your spirit been purchased by his blood, your body has been purchased by his blood. And so God was saying, I want out of here. Number two, he said, now you can come in anytime, 24-7, 365 days a year. You can run into the presence of God. You can enter my presence without guilt, without fear, without condemnation. You can run to him. So we have a new sanctuary. We have a new sacrifice. It's the blood of Jesus. Look at what he says here in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. He says, Christ being come a high priest of this good things to come. Good things. We got good things coming. Everybody say, my future's bright in Christ. Thank God. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Oh yeah. He says, perfect tabernacle, good things to come, not made with them. Speaking of his body, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, the old Testament sacrifices dealt with the old man, dealt with the flesh dealt with the outward men. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to make you servants of the living God? What he's saying here is the Old Testament sacrifices dealt with the flesh, but the New Testament sacrifice deals with the spirit and it purges our conscience from dead works. It purges our conscience from legalism, from law, from performance, from all the things that we're doing to try to appease the wrath of God. Jesus' blood has appeased the wrath of God. It's already been satisfied. Thank God there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we can run into his presence presence. It's not about what he, what we're doing. It's about what he's already done. So we have this new priest, right? We have a new covenant. We have a new sanctuary, the body of Christ. He's living in the hearts of men. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost and he's got a new sacrifice. It's the blood of Jesus. It doesn't have to be offered over and over and over again. It's not like an age old IOU that comes up and comes up another day older and deeper. And what do I get? Another day older and deeper in debt. My dad used to play that record when I was a kid. Thank God. (laughs) Glory to God, I've been delivered. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. Praise God. And the price has already been paid. I was born into health, born into wealth, born into righteousness. I was born into authority. I'm a child of the king. Changes how that I live my life. Praise God. We've got a brand new sanctuary and a brand new sacrifice. It's the blood of Jesus. He talks a little bit about it. Notice notice he goes down in in verse 20. He's talking about Moses. When when they dedicated the old covenant, he took some blood and he sprinkled the book and he sprinkled the people. And he sprinkled the book and he sprinkled the people. Praise God. And he he says, by this blood is this book enjoined to you. Listen, this is not my covenant with you. This is God's covenant with you. This is not my word to you. This is not Andrew's word to you. This is God's word to you. This is not my promise to you. This is God's promise to you. God wants you to be healed more than you want to be healed. God wants you to prosper more than you want to prosper. God wants you to have peace more than you want to have peace. He took the blood and he sprinkled the book and he sprinkled the people. And what he's saying is this blood of Jesus has enjoined the covenant of God with us. It's not our covenant. It's God's covenant with you. It's not our word. It's God's word to you. And then he makes this statement. He says in verse 22, he says, And almost all things by the law are purged and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Thank God our sins have been remitted. They've been canceled. All sense of punishment, guilt and debt has been canceled. It's been taken care of. 
We've been restored by the blood of Jesus. So we have a new priest. We have a new covenant. We have a new sanctuary. We have a new sacrifice. And then he says in chapter 10, he says, we have a brand new life. I've got a brand new life. I've got a brand new life. God didn't just fix us up, right? He didn't just get us out of the junkyard and sand us off and paint us up. He made us brand new. Praise God. We're not a wreck that's been fixed up. This isn't a self-help program. We're talking about being born again. We're talking about Christ has taken up his residence on the inside of us. We're talking if, if any man be in Christ, the same has become a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ, not imputing their tres- the, the sins of the world to them. And he, now he's made us ambassadors of Christ. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, who never experienced sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he makes some statements and he says in this new covenant in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. I'm sanctified, right? Of God are you in Christ who has made unto us. Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus has made unto us all of those things. Amen? Made unto us. Not something that we did, but something he's made unto us. And so he goes on and makes this statement. He says, this man in verse 12, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From that point, expecting his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them who are sanctified. Everybody say, I am perfect in Christ Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) Say it again. Look at your neighbor. I am perfect. Barbara, look at me. I am perfect in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I am perfect. That means you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and authority. So in this brand new life, we have been perfected forever. We're perfect. We're complete. Thank God he's the head of all principality. He's the head of all authority and we are complete in him. Thank God. So I'm perfect. I'm complete in Christ, but not only am I perfect. He goes on to say in verse 16 to verse 18, notice what he says here. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, that I will put my laws in their hearts, in their minds, in their sins, and their iniquities. Will I remember no more? Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. What he's saying is not only am I complete, but I am, not only am I perfect, but I am perfectly forgiven. Perfectly forgiven. The price has already been paid. Now, when we understand that we have a new priest, We have a new covenant. We have a new sanctuary. We have a new sacrifice, right? We have a brand new life. What response does that incite from us? What is the response to the new covenant? What is the response to grace? What is the response to the gospel? What is our response to Jesus? What is our response to all those good things? Now let's look at verse 19 to verse 25. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having this high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let's run to Jesus, right? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, from a conscience based on our performance, right? And and our bodies washed with pure water, the washing of the water of the word. See, the first 11 chapters of Romans, for instance, talk about God's plan of righteousness for mankind. But chapter 12 through chapter 16, talk about how you live that out. And what he says in chapter 12, verse one, I beseech you now, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable. And do not be conformed to this 
world. Don't follow the pattern or the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove out what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. I want you to walk it out. I want you to prove it out. I want your life to testify of the righteousness of God. See, that's what he's saying here. The same thing. We're coming to Jesus. He says, let us draw near with a pure heart, with full assurance of the faith and, and, and having our minds, our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscious bodies washed with pure, pure water. Then he says, not only let us draw near, but let, let, look at verse 23. He says, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Let us hold fast. You profess something, you believe something, let's hold fast to it. Why? Because he is faithful that promised. Because even though I may be unfaithful, he remains faithful. Even though I may fail, he never fails. Praise God. Even though I may blow it, he never blows it. So let's hold fast to the profession of our faith. Never let go of the profession of our faith. Let's draw near, let's hold fast. And then what's the next one? He says, let us consider one another. Think about one another. See, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But when he was there, he didn't only think about himself. He thought on the things of others. It's not only how it affects me. It's how it affects the world. It's how it affects the the body of Christ. You know, there's some things, reasons I don't want to go get in sin and live in sin. Number one, I don't want to do anything that violates my personal relationship with God in Christ. I don't want to harden my heart to his voice. He's still speaking to me. Number two, I'm thinking about my mentors, Andrew and Jamie Womack. You know what? I don't want to do something that would bring discredit to their name. Number three, I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my wife and my children. I don't want to do anything that would destroy my family. And, and you know, you, you can do a little bit and a little and, and just destroy a lifetime of good. Hey, don't, sin is stupid and it'll kill you. Right? And it's deadly. Don't get thinking you can go dabble around a little bit and be all right. See, because I believe if you truly understand the gospel, if you truly understand the grace of God, if you truly understand the new covenant, if you truly understand Jesus and have come into a relationship with Jesus, it's going to completely change your life. You're not going to want to see how close to hell you can live and still make heaven. You're going to consider one another. Romans chapter 14 verse 7 says, none of us is an island. No man lives to himself or dies to himself. You're all affecting somebody. So I want to live right. Why? Because it affects my witness. It affects my, you know, it doesn't affect God's attitude towards me, but it sure will affect my attitude towards God. Right? I don't want to do anything that defiles my relationship with my father. Right? I want to stay in in a good relationship with Jesus. Number one. Number two, I want to keep a right relationship with my family. I want to see how it affects them. Number three, I want to, I want to be a good witness to, for those who are my mentors in the gospel. Number four, I want to have a good positive witness to my church. Right? I, my life affects other people. None of us lives to himself or dies to himself. No man's an island. You're affecting somebody. Somebody's affecting you. Not only does it affect my church, but it affects the Bible school and the, and the students that I minister to. Right? Not only does it affect them, it affects the world, my testimony to the world. I want to keep preaching Jesus. I want to get, live a good long life and have a good testimony while I'm there. He says, let us consider one another. Now, how do we consider one another? He says, and provoke unto love and to good works. Let's provoke each other. Let's prod each other on to love and to good works. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Listen, when I got filled with the Holy Ghost 35 years ago in Andrew Womack's meeting, when I got filled with the Holy Ghost, it completely changed my life. I got so in love with the Word. I got so in love with Jesus. You couldn't keep me out of church. My par- After Andrew and Jamie left Lamar, we got involved in a good full gospel church. And you know what? I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group, camp meeting, everything they had, I went to it. In fact, I joke about these Pentecostal churches. They can't evangelize the world because all they're doing is going to church. (laughs) But you know what? I love to get together with other believers and worship God. And I'm not just preaching my, you know, tooting my own horn because I'm a pastor. 
You know what I'm saying? He says, we, we, should, we ought to get together with the body of Christ. We ought to come together and worship. Why? Because we're affecting somebody. Because not only, maybe you're good, but you know what? You affect other people. And when you're not, when you're not taking your place in the body of Christ, God has set the members in the body, everyone as it pleased him. We all need to find our set place. When you're not taking your place, then there's a gifting, there's an anointing that somebody else is missing out on. Not only am I not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, he says, this is the next thing. He, he, in verse 26 to verse 29, he says, I'm not, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. I'm not rejecting Jesus. We have to qualify verse 26, right? Because if I cussed, I cussed willfully. Right? Nobody made me do it. The devil didn't make me do it. I have authority over the devil and all, over all his work. If I committed adultery, it's not because anybody made me. It's because I did it. I chose to do that. So this sin is not talking about cussing. It's not talking about committing adultery. You have to qualify verse 26 with verse 29 in Hebrews chapter 6. You put it all together and it says the same thing. Right? But he says in verse 29, he's talking about he says, those who have done trodden underfoot the Son of God counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified and done the holy thing and done despite to the Spirit of grace. Somebody said that 70 to 80% of the college students of America forsake their faith when they go to college. I don't think they really ever had faith. They, 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 just, did, they just didn't have it. They made, might have went to church on Christmas and Easter. They might have went to some kind of Christian club but I really question that they were born again because I don't think 70 or 80% of people are rejecting Jesus. And I think if you truly have faith, it's going to completely change the way you're going to live your life. I don't know where these guys get their facts from. We're making disciples. We're teaching them the word of God. We're teaching them about the grace of God. Legalism will mess you up. If you're in legalism, yeah, you might want to walk away from some of that. But man, when you understand the grace of God, when you understand the gospel. Listen, I've had a real heart to heart with my youth pastor. And I said, there's some things they may teach in other places. We're not teaching in this place. And I'm telling you, he's, he sat in Andrew Womack's pastor's conference two years ago and got a revelation of the grace of God. And he's teaching the grace of God. He's teaching spirit, soul, and the body. And I've been to my home groups and I've heard those teenagers talk about what they're learning. And I know they understand the gospel. And I'm telling you, 70 or 80% of them, when they leave my church, are not going to forsake the faith. Because the gospel will change their life just like the gospel's changed my life. Amen. So as we look at this, there's just, there's just so much that he says, but he says, let us consider one another. We got to think about what we're doing. And, and so he says, there's some things we're not doing. We're not rejecting Jesus. We're not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. He says, we're not of those in verse 39 who draw back to perdition, to judgment, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. He says, we're people of faith. And he says, for faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me tell you what, faith is a declaration that God is alive. Your life testifies to the world. And he talks about all of these people of faith who lived in the Old Testament who hadn't received what we've received. And he talks about Abel who gave an offering and Enoch who walked with God. And he talks about Noah who built an ark. And he talks about Abraham and Sarah who conceived and had a child who looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He talks about Abraham who offered his son. He talks about Isaac who blessed his children and Jacob who blessed his children. He talks about Joseph who gave commandment concerning his bones. He talks about Moses who forsook Egypt to lead the children of God out of Egypt who, to take the Passover to go in the promise. Land. He talks about all of these different people of faith. And he says some of them received their dead from life. Others, others, others of those, some of them were delivered by believing. Others would not accept deliverance. But they were tortured and accepted death because they would not reject their faith. He says, this is a life, your life is a life of faith. And if people can't see your faith, I really question if you have faith at all. 
And he says, all these Old Testament saints went on before us. They lived by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My life is evidence that there is a God who lives. He says in verse 6, for it is impossible without faith. It is impossible for, for us to please God. For he, what? must believe that God is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. If you really believe that God is and you really believe that God rewards those who diligently seek him, what are you going to do? You're going to keep seeking God, right? Your life testifies to the world that God is alive. Your life testifies to the world that God is real. Your life testifies. Your life is a living demonstration that Jesus is alive. And he goes on at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and he says, these all obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, every one of us have more than all of the Old Testament saints. We have more than Abraham. We have more than David. We have more than Moses. We have more than Elijah. The spirit of God came on them once in a while, but the spirit of God lives on the inside of us. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The spirit of God lives on the inside inside of us. And he says in chapter 12, verse one, wherefore seeing we are compassed about with this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. And let us, let us run with patience the race that's set before us, considering him, considering Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, there's a reward at the end, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. You have not resisted to blood, striving against sin. Because we understand the new covenant, because we understand the grace of God, because we understand the gospel, because we come into a relationship with Jesus, it has totally changed the way that we live our life. It's totally changed the way that we live our life. Let me give you just a couple more and I'll quit. I haven't looked at my clock. Listen to what he goes on to say. He talks about chastisement. God's not chastising with anything bad. He's the father of spirits, right? But jump down, listen to what he says in verse 18. For you're not come to the mount that might be touched with burn with fire, nor blackness and darkness. And then he says in verse 22, but you are come to Mount Zion. That's where the church was born, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to an innumerable company of angels. Look at what we have. You've come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. I'm part of the church of Jesus Christ, which is written in heaven to God, the, just of, uh, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've been made whole. You've been made complete in Christ. And so he says, you've come to this because of where you've come to, because of what you've received. See that you receive, uh, re- refuse not him that speaks. God is speaking and God has spoken through his son, Jesus. Don't refuse what he's saying to you. Stay in a, in a relationship with Jesus. Keep walking with God. What is faith? Faith is a relationship with God. It was through a relationship with God that Abel gave. It was through a relationship with God that Noah built. It was through a relationship with God that Abraham offered up his son. It was through a relationship with God that Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Faith is a relationship with God. Keep listening to Jesus. Then he makes this statement in verse 28. He said, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Listen, he's talking about there's a lot of things going to be shaken. What's he talking? He's talking about legalism. Legalism. If you're trusting your own performance, that's going to be shaky ground. But if you're trusting in Jesus, if you put your confidence in Jesus, that's never going to be shaken. Have grace that you might serve God with the, you know, reverence and godly fear. Then he says in verse 9 of chapter 13, there's some things we ought to do as believers. He said, it's good that your heart be established with grace and not with meat. It's not about our performance again. We have an altar. Who is this altar? Jesus represents our approach to God. We approach God through Jesus. And those in the old covenant had no right to eat of that tabernacle. He says in verse 13, let us go there. Forth, therefore, to him, let us 
go forth to him without the camp bearing his reproach. When we go to the world outside, maybe they don't love us, maybe they don't accept us, but we don't care. Amen? If the world rejects me, I don't care. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we're seeking one to come. By him, therefore, let us, let us, let us offer to God continually the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now let's conclude in verse 20 and verse 21 of chapter 13. See, when you understand we have a new priest, we have a new covenant, we have a new sanctuary, we have a new sacrifice, we have a brand new life. It totally changes how you live. Totally changes. Hold fast your profession. Draw near, right? Consider one another, right? Lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets you, right? Run with patience the race that's set before you, right? When you go out to the world, you're not ashamed of your Christian testimony, right? Not only that, but he says this, he says this as we look at it in verse 13, let us offer the sacrifice of praise continually. Let's continually thank God for all the good things that he's done in Jesus. We can run to his presence without guilt, fear, and condemnation. We can worship Jesus. If it wasn't worship God through Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, we couldn't do that. Then he makes this last statement in verse 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will make you perfect. Not only, how's he doing it? Through the blood. Not only makes you perfect in your spirit, but he makes you perfect in every good work to do his will. That which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Really, the Christian life isn't that hard. It's really simple. When you understand the truth, when you understand the gospel, when you understand the grace of God, when you understand the new covenant, when you understand who Jesus is, because it's no longer you that live. It's just Jesus living his life big in you. And that's all we really need to do is just let Jesus live his life big on the inside of us. It's not me doing the work. Paul says, I labor according to his work, which working, which works in me mightily. Jesus has come, become so real to me that I, that I, that that, it, that it's consumed my entire life. His working works in me mightily. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The, mo- the hope of the manifested presence, power, and purpose of God in your life. We love you.